Folks, if you're liking what you're getting from 30MPC, the number one way you can support us is by subscribing to our newsletter. Every week, you only get two emails. On Monday, you get a content roll-up of everything that dropped last week. And on Fridays, I pick one topic and I personally write a deep dive on things like how to cold call, how to run a discovery call, or even how to hire an AE. So if you're liking what you're getting here, take two seconds, go to the show notes. You'll see a button to subscribe to our newsletter, or you can go to 30mpc.com backslash newsletter and do it there. We'll catch you soon. Cheers. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this episode of 30 Minutes to President's Club. My name is Armand Farouk, and I'm here with my co-host, Nick Sigelski. And today, for round two, we've got the one and only Florin Tatulia. He's a director of sales now over at Barley. Nick, why should people listen? It is getting increasingly more difficult to book outbound meetings. Luckily, Florin's still doing it, and he shared a lot of his best practices around contact strategy structure, messaging for above-the-line and below-the-line personas, and generally some good stuff in terms of how you can get some meetings. Above the line, three, two, one, now we're below the line. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. If you get an email and the action required on that email is going to take you less than two minutes to do, do it on the spot. It's not worth adding it to your to-do list, having to look at the item, remember what you need to do. That's going to take you more than two minutes anyway. So do it on the spot, get it off your plate. Now we documented our best templates and tips to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang. And you can get that documentation for free at the link in the show notes. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90-Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's tactic to triple your connect rate is brought to you by RocketReach, who provides data that lets you reach out to the right person at the right account at the right time. Every time you're reaching out to an account, pull down the contacts again. Yes, I know it sucks, but the average tech tenure is two years, which means 50% of the workforce turns over every year. So look up the account, pull anyone who was hired, and scratch anyone who was left. And one way you can pull verified and accurate data is with RocketReach. So if you like this, check out their toolkit on eight ways to triple your cold call connects in the show notes. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes. Your Zoom Info actionable insight tactic is called Jane's Moving Up. Why? Because that's the email subject line you'll use when you get a real-time notice that your prospect Jane just got promoted. From there in the email, explain how Zoom Info helps rising sales leaders win their first 90 days on the job by highlighting coaching opportunities or supporting a team-wide prospecting push. And you can try out this trigger-based email template for prospect promotion and four other scenarios inspired by Zoom Info's go-to-market plays. Link in the show notes. All right, Florin, welcome back to the show. You remember we start every single episode with your top three actionable takeaways. So let's get your three. Yeah, I'm super excited to be here. Thanks for having me. 
So three actionable takeaways. Number one, you need to get your email deliverability in order, especially if you're a startup and don't have IT teams. Uh, one thing that I'm thinking about right now being at a startup is that email deliverability is a silent killer. If your open rates are less than 30%, it's likely has nothing to do with your actual subject line or the first sentence in that email. So before you even send anything, you don't want it to go into spam. So set up your DNS records. I know that's a technical term and we can get into it if we want to. We're seeing an inbox warmer, which essentially tricks Gmail and Outlook into thinking that you're getting replies to your, your inbox. And then some other tactical tips, which are very quick that you can do. So setting up your profile picture on your Gmail or Outlook account, having no links in your first email, whether that's like a photo or a video link, which might be contrary to some popular belief. Uh, having your address in your signature also helps quite a bit. And it's not like any one of these things is going to put you on a blacklist, but it's almost this idea of death by a thousand paper cuts where it's like, if you do a lot of these things, right, the algorithm is looking for any possible sign that you might be a bot. So you're just helping yourself out here and giving yourself a shot to even get that great subject line, that great email in your prospects inbox. Beautiful. What's number two? So number two is uh, calling out direct reports of your prospects plus providing the cost of inaction in a subject line has gotten me to 80 or 90% open rates. So a lot of people tell you that subject lines need to be short and sweet. They need to sound internal, but framework I have before I come up with a subject line. So one is understanding, okay, who is my prospect by title? Two, who are the direct reports that will be impacted by your solution? and call them out by first name. And then three, what is the actual cost of inaction if someone doesn't use your product or solution? I'll give you a perfect example of this. When I was at a company called Plato, where we were selling a mentorship platform for engineering leaders, I was reaching out to VPs of engineering. Who were the direct reports that were impacted by the solution? It was uh, director and managers of engineering because they were the ones that were gonna receive mentorship from us. And then the other thing that we found in regards to cost of inaction when speaking with our customers was that if you didn't have mentorship, you were much more likely to leave the company and therefore that led to attention risk. So a perfect subject line that worked really well for us in that case was what happens if Armon and, and Nick leave with the two names being the, the direct managers or directors. And we would find that out on, on LinkedIn with a little bit of research. Very nice. Round us out. What's number three? Number three is messaging and sequencing should be segmented for above and below the decision-making line. And I think way too many salespeople and SDR teams specifically have the same messaging that's going out to both executives and also direct managers. Uh, and I think you have to realize that VPs and C-level executives have very different priorities or, or incentives than someone that's a direct manager or even a director, depending on the size of the company. So I'll give you a perfect example of this. When I was selling at Lupio in, in the RFP space, if we were going to go to a VP of sales and said that we can save, you know, you and your team time from copy and pasting and making sure that your RFPs are nice and clean. I don't think that message would resonate, especially in a, a time like now where everything is being scrutinized so deeply. You have to go to the VP of sales with like a bottom line. Like what is having an RFP response solution actually doing for you? So researching, for example, hey, I noticed you're going into enterprise 
space, have you thought about how you're going to win RFPs in the enterprise space where they're much more prevalent compared to a company or one of your competitors that's been in the enterprise space for 10 years? And that's a problem that a VP of sales is actually now going to listen to, right? As opposed to if I'm selling to a proposal manager, they care about their day-to-day. They want high-quality work. They don't want to copy and paste. They want to, you know, log off and, and go and actually enjoy their, their weekends. They might not even necessarily care at an enterprise company or know what the bottom line or the three main priorities of the executive team even are. So those messages need to be very different. So Florin, one of the things that I struggled with back in the day when I was prospecting is I would have so many different cuts and segments of sequences. And so for example, I would have above and below the line like you discussed but I would have it by persona. I might have it by product. I might have it by trigger. I might have it by, they raised a round or they had a batch of new hires. And when I wanted to add one thing to my messaging, I would end up having to add it to like 20 different sequences. And so do you have a recommended either number or way that you would typically segment your sequences? Yeah. Yeah. It's a very common problem. And I do a lot of, of sequencing consulting too. And what you tend to find over time as companies grow, like you'll end up with hundreds of sequences and no one even knows what's working anymore. And it's that exact problem. Like you have to change so many different things. I'm a very big believer in keeping it as simple as possible. So I can't give you an exact number of what the best number of sequences is because it depends on how many use cases you have, how many different personas you have, how many industries you're selling into. But I like to make my sequences persona based. So if I'm selling, let's say, I'll give you an example, RFP software, we are selling into sales teams and also infosec teams. So I'd have above and below the line sequence for VPs of sales, for CISOs, then also for below the line for the same type of persona. And that's pretty much, that's pretty much it. And then the use cases, I'd have three use cases within each sequence. So that if a specific use case didn't resonate with that persona, maybe the second one did, if not, then the third. How would you decide how you would allocate your time prospecting across those four different sequences? Because one area that I think I've struggled with in the past is I would say, all right, like I should be going above the line and I would spend all of my time on like the above the line sequences, or I would spend all of my time on the infosec persona and I would, I would like exhaust my territory there. And then I would go after the VPs of sales. Like what's your approach to the division of your focus? I think it's very important that you focus on both almost equally. I think what's really valuable about the below the line sequences is you can get a lot of good information from them without necessarily trying to book a meeting and being more educational where you can take that information and then go to above the line personas and come with an educated email that actually is relevant to them. For example, it's way easier to cut through the noise and for us to get through to a proposal manager than it would be through a VP of sales. So having a conversation with the proposal manager, I'm not trying to sell you on the platform. I'm trying to understand how your process is running, what your win rates are, how long it's taking you to respond to an RFP. Then I'm going to go to the VP of sales and the above the line sequence and be like, Hey, talk with a few members of your team. It sounds like your win rates or RFPs are 10%. That's generally lower than what we're seeing. Uh, and then try to explain to them why our solution would help with that. 
So I don't think you should neglect any one of those personas. I think they're both equally as important. I want to ask about sort of the, the backdrop or context for that conversation with the proposal manager, because my entire career, any prospecting outreach that I'm doing is with the intent of, I want to have a sales meeting, a sales interaction with this person. And you're not doing that. It sounds like you're setting up a conversation. I don't know. Is it over email? Are you getting on a zoom call? Like how are you incentivizing this person to just share a bunch of information with you when you're, you're not even going to try to sell them the thing you're going to go to the VP of sales next? What's the context you give them? Yeah. Well, I still think you need to highlight what the future state is going to look like for them. Ultimately, we're trying to make your, your life better. I generally know what kind of problems you're facing as a proposal manager. So I'm stating that in an email and I'm highlighting with the future state what your future could look like. So imagine instead of having to write like a a 10 page document, we can automatically with the click of a button, answer all these questions for you. And now you can actually focus on quality, improving your win rates and just giving you back more time. One of the main things that we were hearing were like people were working into weekends, evenings, not spending time with their family because it took so long to craft these documents. So just like going to them and painting the picture of, hey, we can help you. I know you're not a decision maker. I just want to understand how you're doing things so that we can build a case to go to your leader and and ultimately help you out. So there still has to be something in it for them. We're not like not selling them, but letting them know that, hey, I'm not here for you to have a formal evaluation. It's totally okay. I just want to learn how you're doing things. In our prep, one of the things that you talk about is the new low friction CTA is actually not having a hard ask for a meeting or for something, but rather focusing on educating your prospect without an ask upfront. Can you talk about that process a little bit more? Yeah. So there's a guy called Harry Sims. I keep calling him out when I talk about permission slapping because he's the one that came up with it and I've been using it and I, I love it. The whole idea is that I'm not even asking for interest anymore, especially below the line. I'm essentially just asking you for permission to give you some kind of valuable information. So that'll come in the form of, here's an observation that I have about your business. For example, like I noticed that you're going into enterprise. Do you mind if I send you a quick 90 second videos to show you how we can help you respond to RFPs? And it's a painless 90 second video. Or here's a, a benchmark report that we built out just so that you can get an understanding of what win rates in the RFP space actually look like. And that tends to facilitate a conversation, which then leads to a sale later on. But again, this is long-term thinking, not short-term thinking. And this can be a whole separate conversation around incentivization for people like SDRs that are prospecting. But I think, especially in this environment, we need to start thinking more about educating in some sense, becoming an inbound engine, even though we're outbound. So what you're doing is you're essentially creating your own inbound in this case, instead of saying, can I get a meeting with you? You're trying to warm up that interest by giving them something first. When you compare your replies on an educational give versus a meeting ask, how meaningful of a lift do you see on the reply rate if this is done correctly? Yeah, like 30 to 40% is, is what I've seen in terms of reply rates. Now, that doesn't mean that's outbound accepted opportunities. And there could be some issue there around like attribution, because what ended up happening to us a lot, a lot of people would come inbound from the same accounts that we outbounded two or three months ago. 
So that indicated to me that it was ultimately working, but it's not very easy to track. So I tried this strategy once when I was selling to law firms, and I remember once just getting a response, Y-E-S, all lowercase letters from like this managing partner of the law firm. And I was like, okay, I guess I can send this person more. But is your approach when somebody, all they give you is a thumbs up, what happens next? Yeah. I think the most important thing is make sure you don't go into selling mode there right away. I think a lot of people will be like, okay, here's the piece of content. And now do you want to have the meeting? I think you should do the exact opposite and have patience. I like to personally send videos. I send like a, the 60 or 90 second loom, which is what I promised them in the first place when I was permission slapping or asking for permission to send. Then I wait a couple of days. And then the next thing is just asking what like in some form, what they thought of that piece of content or that video, or maybe highlighting one specific thing. It's like, Hey, in that video, I actually talked about this one thing. What are your thoughts on that? Do you think that could help? And then if they don't respond, waiting another few days and then sending them another piece of content. So I, I don't even think you should try to push for that meeting until at least like the second week is what I've been doing. But right now, yes, I 100% recommend you put them into another sequence. That's essentially like a, a short-term nurture sequence. One thing that this reminds me of is a couple of weeks back, we had Charlotte Johnson on the podcast, and she very much differentiates her outbound sequences where she's explicitly trying to get a meeting versus her deposit sequences. And so once you've worn out a prospect and you've asked them for meetings a bunch of times, this can be one way that you can warm prospects back up because what a lot of reps will do is they'll just sequence someone for 30 days, they'll wait 30 days, and then they'll do the exact same thing and they'll hope that something changed. But the reality is usually something has not changed and you're just begging for someone to be in the right place and time at that point. Florin, can you, you've mentioned the concept a couple times of above versus below the line prospecting. And we've yeah. talked about how you should segment your messaging, how you're oftentimes using the information you get below the line, above the line. But can you talk about just like key principles or things to or to not do when prospecting above versus below the line? One, you always need to do your research above the line very generic emails are never going to get across to those types of people. If you think about how much noise they have and Armand, I'm sure like you can relate to this too, as a VP of sales, like you probably get a ton of, of messages. So something that's generic is just not going to work. You have to spend more time doing it. If you're working with public companies, I think it's a hundred percent necessity that you're going into the 10 K reports, you're going to the call transcripts, or you're doing some kind of Google search on the company to try to understand what is their strategy for the next year? And there, I haven't come across a case yet in our account where you can't come up with some personalized information that somehow ties the bottom line to, to your solution. And if you can't do that, maybe that means that account is actually not a good fit for you. And that's telling in itself and it's probably going to save you a lot of time anyways. So I think, I think that's the main thing. I think you can do a bit more of an automated type of sequence below the line, but never for above the line. What's the depth of personalization that you're doing for these above the line folks, maybe at a public company, that's a really great target for you. The standard that I've seen is that most people will personalize the first email that they send. And then from there on out, it's bumps and then generic follow-ups. 
but you're doing a lot of work reading 10Ks, like learning about their strategy. Are you incorporating deeper personalization into multiple steps? What's that look like? So most of the sequences that I have are mostly automated for above and below the line. But the difference is that above the line, there's two to three emails that are, let's call it personalized or relevant based off of research. Yeah. So if I'm working in account, going into that call transcript quickly, going on their website, going to the investor tab, doing control F in the transcripts to look for certain keywords mm -hmm. that you can identify that usually signal that they're a good fit and something that you can use. And then two to three emails. So remember I said there's three use cases per sequence. So that first email for each use case is personalized above the line. Can you talk about if I'm an SDR or an AE and I'm trying to prospect and I don't want to read a 10K or an investor or the investor day transcript line by line, what are the types of keywords I might use that would illuminate a problem that a customer could have? Yeah. Very specific to what you're trying to solve for. Because uh, for example, when we were dealing with at Plato engineering teams, we were looking into like R and D investment in the risk section around like hiring issues, retention. When you're focusing on sales teams, you probably want to focus more on like top line growth, expansion into new territories, 2023 plans. If you're a cybersecurity company, you probably want to stay more in the risks and like, are there issues around security breaches? So the, it really depends on, on what, who you're selling to or what division of the company. It's definitely a bit of an art, like at this point, for example, I can go look into a transcript, you do a control F and you, you look for your 10 keywords, and then you can formulate some form of an email within like 10, 15 minutes when you get good at it. This is not something that's meant to take you an hour of time. And it might in the very beginning, but I also think it's up to the managers and the sales enablement team to teach you or have some kind of a session on how do you read these things? What are the keywords that you need to search for? Florin, I want to ask you about your general sequence structure. So let's say I'm prospecting into a VP of sales. Yeah. Can you give me a sense of the touches that you're making, the frequency of those touches, like the density of the touches? What's a general sequence look like for you when you're going after a VP of sales? Yeah. I'm not going to say anything revolutionary here. I think uh, my frameworks are somewhat based off of the famous Agoji sequence. I, I'm very much a believer in don't fix what's not broken. And I've tried a ton of different sequences over the last eight years, and that one still tends to work really well. So just to summarize probably what other people have said as well, 12 to 15 steps at least must be over 20 business days, 20 to 25 business days, and it must be a like an omni-channel approach, emails, phone calls, and uh, LinkedIn. I think that the only thing I'm going to say that's different here is a lot of people feel like, oh, all of my meetings are happening over email and like calls don't work. What you need to start thinking about is how a sequence is very much like a demand gen engine and like a retargeted ad. Just because people are not picking up their phone, if that truly is their phone number and they can see that call from you and then you send them an email, and then they see like that phone number in the subject line, and then they see your face on LinkedIn, that, that means it's, it's working. If you're getting a reply anywhere in your sequence, 
it means that all of the channels are like working together in unison somehow. So don't discount one channel because the other one, because that one is not working. I also have some data on this. I actually did an experiment where I ran the exact same sequence with just LinkedIn and email and then added calls to it. And it was, a, I think it was close to a 40% increase in replies just because the third step was added. Wow. It's uh, similarly, I ran a, an experiment when I was running the SCR team back at Carta where we were running two sequences that were exactly the same. And the only difference was we added two calls to one versus the other. And even where people weren't picking up the phone, it was because we were leaving voicemails. It was because they were seeing the phone number pop up. It powered the replies of the other emails. And I think there's a similar concept around LinkedIn messaging too, where I, I, from personal experience, I don't book a ton of meetings on LinkedIn. I get a lot of people who will reply to my email because I reached out to them or nudged them on LinkedIn or I connected with them. And so on the note of sequence structure, Florin, can you give me a sense of when and how are you weaving in social touches into your sequences? And then second piece of this would be, are you doing this for all of your prospects or are you really only reserving this for your key prospect? Yeah. Uh, so I'm a big believer in bursts. And the reason I say that is because I, I actually let SDRs, I don't even reply to SDRs right away because I want to see their sequences. I don't know if that's like bad to admit. But uh, one thing I noticed that works on me is bursts. So what that means is that on day one, for example, if I'm sending an email, I'm going to make a call right after, and then I'm going to either connect with them or at least have my profile views on so that they get that notification. What I realized is even if I'm not picking up the phone, I'm in a meeting, but if you send me an email, I see that you connect with me on LinkedIn and you called me within an hour, I now know you're there. And that, that is from personal experience. So it can't just be me that's, that's going through this. So that's why I think bursts work because they're, you're kind of getting surrounded across multiple channels and you're also letting people respond to you how on their preferred platform of communication, right? I think that's the other most important thing. I'm a believer that everyone needs to get at least some. And remember a touch can be as simple as a profile view. If you're already on sales navigator and you're prospecting, like, let's say, Maybe it's not a priority account. You're already providing some kind of a touch point there. It doesn't take much to add a connection request in and then send one email message at some point as well. So I think you should do it for everyone. When you're doing that social prospecting, are you sending a connect request with a note? Are you commenting on their stuff? Are you sending them an in-mail? What's sort of your preferred use of, of LinkedIn? Yeah. I actually don't love in-mails too much. Again, it depends very much on your persona. I just found that it didn't work for who we've been reaching out to. So two options. One, it's either a blank connection request that usually has about a 70% connection rate, like over time from what I've seen, or it's almost similar to a voicemail. It's like you're guiding the person to your email. You're never pitching. It's very short. Be like, Hey, sent you an email regarding mentorship. Wanted to put a face to the name. Florin, this has been a phenomenal episode. I love getting to dig into the specifics around your contact strategy. And I felt like you gave so much more detail than we've gotten in our past couple episodes. So thank you. We're running out of time. We got to move to the final question. And the final question is this. We've talked about a lot of really good things salespeople should be doing. Now I got to ask you about a shouldn't. And so the last question is, what's one bad habit that you see a lot of salespeople exhibiting that you think that they need to break because it hurts them more than it helps? 
Yeah. And this might not be a very tactical sales one specific. It's more general advice to salespeople. I think too many salespeople go listen to, to podcasts, go on LinkedIn and follow like content creators and then take these tactics and apply it to their own company. What you have to realize is that context is very important. You have your own personas that you reach out to, your own industry, your own product market fit. Just because a tactic works for one specific person doesn't mean that it's going to work for everybody else. So take advice with a grain of salt. But the biggest message I have is use the data that you have because you're in a unique situation. And if you understand the fundamentals, and this is why it's so important to understand the fundamentals and not just like take tactics because tactics change, but fundamentals never do. And if you understand the fundamentals, you can be the one that's creating the tactics as time goes by. Boom. Florin, thank you for joining us. Everybody stick around for a 60 second recap coming up soon. Otter AI's Otter Pilot for Sales gives you the freedom to sell on your discovery calls by taking notes for you. One of the best ways to deepen your discovery is to ask your prospect about the impetus behind their goals. So when a prospect tells me they want to advertise on more sales podcasts, I'll say, well, it's not every day that you wake up and decide you want to sponsor a podcast. What's causing you to even explore this in the first place? Now, we put together the ultimate discovery checklist with our friends at Otter AI, which you can get for free at the link in the show notes. This actionable competitive tactic from Clue is the trap question. Steer discovery toward the winning zone. If we're competing with a podcast that has no newsletter or webinar series, we might ask a trap question like, how do you figure out if those podcast listeners are making their way to your mailing list? And when you're in a head-to-head, there's no better way to prepare for your next competitive battle than with our trap questions and battle card templates from our friends at Clue. The link's in the show notes. Today's deal acceleration cheat code is brought to you by Pipedrive, which is a CRM built by sellers for sellers. The best way to drive your pipeline forward is to every single day, pull up a list of all of your open opportunities and look at each opportunity by stage and think, what can I do today that will increase my likelihood of winning this deal? That's how you keep your ops moving forward in between meetings that you have on the calendar. Now we documented five cheat codes that can help you cut your sales cycle in half with Pipedrive. There's a link in the show notes to steal them. Your top four takeaways from this episode with Florin Tatulia include number one, segment your sequences between above and below the line decision makers. Number two, permission slap. Ask for permission to give valuable information. In other words, you can ask someone if you can send them a 90 second video to show you how you might get a sense of what win rates would look like in an RFP. Number three, Look for keywords in the investor day transcript or in the 10K, then attach those to the messaging that you use above the line. And then lastly, number four, prospect in bursts. And that doesn't mean bursts of sending 50 emails. That means bursts of voicemails, social touches, and emails, because all of those things work in the totality of the touches to drive more replies. All righty, Nick, how can people help us out here? So Florin talked about his sequence structure in this episode. And if you were the type of person who like whipped out a pen and paper and was scrambling to write everything down, well, you didn't have to do that. Believe it or not, we document best practices for sequence structure or cold call scripts on the 30 Minutes to Presidents Club website. So if you go to 30mpc.com, you can actually steal some sequence structures that we've put together for you. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next week on 30 Minutes to Presidents Club. Gong's going to help you run the five-minute drill at the end of all of your calls today. 
At the end of a call, pressure test the prospect with three questions. Number one, do you want to buy? If the answer is no, why set a next step at all? Number two, when do you want to buy? If it's tomorrow, we got to move fast. Number three, how do you buy? Based on the first two answers, I can now adequately decide if and how I set a next step. And this was stolen from the Gong 30 MPC 90 Minute Masterclass, and you can steal it too in the show notes. Today's tip to optimize your sales day is brought to you by Boomerang. Obsessive checking of your inbox is a total waste of time and brain power. Instead, commit to checking your inbox and responding to email at set times throughout the day. I'm a fan of Boomerang's pause inbox function to keep myself from getting distracted by my inbox. Now, we documented our best templates and tools to help you optimize your sales day with our friends at Boomerang, and you can get that for free at the link in the show notes.